Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. This past summer, 49-year-old actress and star of Netflix Dead to Me, Christina Applegate, revealed that she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and calls her experience thus far a strange journey and a tough road. Today, I'm here with Dr. Krupa Pandey, director of the MS Comprehensive Care Center at the Neuroscience Institute at Hackensack University Medical Center and assistant professor of neurology at the Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Pandey. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So let's start with what exactly is MS? So MS is a disease that affects primarily the brain, the spinal cord, and the eyes. And it takes something which is very normal, which is our immune system, which is supposed to protect us, but it ramps it up. And as a result of that ramp up, you start to get pockets of inflammation or scarring in the coating around the nerves, which then prevents it from functioning the way it's supposed to. Okay, so how does that nerve coating usually function? Is it something that you know controls everything that you do or you know, when it's damaged? That's a great question. So, you know, in order for our brains to send signals to the rest of our body in milliseconds, that electrical signal has to get from our brain all the way down to the tips of our toes. So in order to do that, much like a cable that connects your monitor to your keyboard or to your computer, you need to have it coded in, you know, something that allows it to do that efficiently. So when you get scar tissue in that coding, all of a sudden you get, for lack of a better word, a short circuit. So it prevents that signal from moving in a fast way. Wow, so what are some ways that we could get you know, scar tissue or we can kind of injure that, that coating? So in multiple sclerosis, it's something that's really beyond our control, which is probably why patients who get diagnosed feel so frustrated. It's nothing that they did. It's nothing that they could have controlled. It's unfortunately being born with a genetic risk. And then something in the environment, which we haven't really pinpointed, flips that switch on and then causes that immune system to ramp up and then leave behind scar tissue, especially when a patient undergoes something known as a relapse. So you mentioned genetic risk. Is that the only way you can kind of get MS? As far as we know, genetic risk is one of the main components. And the reason that we know that is that if you take a random group of people, the risk of having MS is one in a thousand. But if you take someone who has a family member, especially a mother, a father, a sister, um, their risk jumps significantly higher. So we know that there's a genetic risk, but we also know that environment plays an important role because if you take 100 identical twins, only 50% of them are going to have, um, you know, you're going to find a risk where only 50% of those sets of 100 twins where both twins have the disease. So we know that there is a genetic component, but there must be something in the environment which allows that gene to turn on. And is there a certain way where you would be able to diagnose these particular people, especially if there is no genetic risk? So there's no way currently available where anyone can walk into a lab and get a genetic test to see if they have MS. But if you do have a family member um, or, you know, you have a 
predisposition to having your immune system being in an overactive drive, like another autoimmune condition, um, then you want to kind of keep an eye out for any neurological symptoms, numbness, tingling, vision loss, weakness, walking difficulty. And if you have that, then it's helpful to touch base with a neurologist just to make sure that, you know, there isn't any underlying risk for MS. So say I'm Christina Applegate and I think I have MS and I come into your office. What would kind of be that that patient journey for me? That's a great question. So a lot of times patients are unaware that they're even having symptoms and then they come in to see a doctor. The first most important step for the diagnosis is history. So it takes a neurologist who has experience with multiple sclerosis to really go in dig deep, get to know the patient, understand their symptoms, and then use that along with the physical examination, which is extremely important in localizing signs and symptoms. And then we take all of that, use an MRI, which is really one of the mainstays of diagnosing a patient. And then oftentimes we may have to do something called a lumbar puncture, which is where we put a needle in the small of your back take out some fluid, and then send it out for analysis. So those are really the four main important things, clinical history, neurological exam, an MRI, and then if we need to, spinal fluid. So then what goes from there? Is there a certain type of treatment that you treat people with MS? Is there a cure for MS? So since I started doing this 14 years ago, we've come extremely far in terms of medications. So I think that part of that journey includes getting to know the patient, what their life is like. So for example, if I have a woman of childbearing age versus a patient who gets diagnosed in their 50s and maybe has already passed that stage of life where they're interested in having children, I may recommend one treatment versus the other. And because we now have so many options, um, I think it's really getting to know that patient, getting to know what their journey is like, and then understanding you know, what medication may best fit their needs. So absolutely, there are medications, but it really takes um, a deep, conversation to understand which might be the best fit for the patient. Are there any, you know, other type of treatments that could help the patient beyond medication? So maybe it's, you know, massages every week to massage their muscles and to get them moving or, you know, different types of intervention beyond medication. Absolutely. So complementary treatments such as diet, exercise, a good rehabilitation program, mental wellness, these are all extremely important things. I think that patients often come in thinking that they either want to be on treatment or they don't want to be on treatment. And treatment can mean many different things. So so I absolutely encourage patients to develop more of a um, multifaceted approach. Part of that includes traditional Uh, treatment like medications, but Mm -hmm. then it also includes all of the other things that we just chatted about. So I think that that's important. Um, And I think that patients should really bring up those types of um, desires with a provider when they're going in. You know, I think that's an important conversation to have. And actually, you mentioned diet, and I was reading that certain foods can help with MS and lowering the risk of relapse. So foods that are rich in omega-3 fatty acids like salmon or, you know, vitamin D, such as milk or biotin and making sure you stay hydrated. Is there any sort of truth to that? Yes, absolutely. So Um, I think you said a very important thing that kind of leads us back to the early part of the conversation, which is that insulation of the brain. So the insulation of the brain is actually made up of fat. 
So when we eat healthy fats like salmon that has the healthy omega-3 fats, if we eat things like avocados, healthy nuts, um, foods that have vitamin D, which are important for the immune cells to communicate with one another, fresh fruits, vegetables, those are extremely important in terms of keeping that inflammation quiet, rebuilding that healthy fat. And then things like hydration are important on a day-to-day basis because they really help all of our cells communicate and get to where they need to. And then more importantly, when you take patients with MS who have certain symptoms like fatigue, spasticity, or stiffness in their muscles, hydration really um, helps those symptoms on a day-to-day basis. And actually, you mentioned something that, that sparked a question in my in my thoughts right now, because is there a way that you could rebuild kind of the coating on your nerves or is it forever damaged? No, so there are studies that show that, you know, the myelin does rebuild as to how much it rebuilds is different. So much like a patient, if you take, you know, a couple of people in a room and they each get a scar, some people heal really well after Mm -hmm. that, you know, damaging that skin and some people don't. It's the same thing with our brain. Everybody's ability to regenerate that coating is different, but there are things that can help it like diet. Exercise is extremely important. When we exercise, our body naturally produces things to keep inflammation quiet. So we know that exercise can be extremely important as well. And then the other part of that is actually medication because a lot of the medications that we have for MS are meant to keep that inflammation quiet and kind of allow the natural part of you know our bodies to do what it needs to do in terms of regenerating that myelin. Interesting, interesting. So there is actually a rumor going around that COVID could actually trigger MS. Is there any truth to that? So understanding that MS is a disease where the immune system is in overdrive, anything that really causes your immune system to go into overdrive. So for example, a virus comes in and you know causes your immune system to go into overdrive to fight that virus may cause you know your body as an innocent bystander to kind of spark or cause an MS either flare or the first episode of MS. So it's not that COVID may cause MS, but it may unmask somebody who has a predisposition already. Wow. So would it be recommended that those individuals that may have MS and could relapse, that they would be, quote unquote, the immunocompromised that we're all trying to keep safe? So the patients that we refer to when we say patients who have MS that are immunocompromised really are the ones that are already on medication. Okay. Because immunocompromised means that your immune system is actually too quiet. In patients who are not on medication, their immune system is in overdrive. So it's kind of finding that balancing act, which is a very tough thing to do. We Mm -hmm. want to keep the immune system quiet to prevent MS from happening, but we we don't want to keep it too quiet where they're now at risk for infections, such as COVID or even the flu or other infections. Yeah, you definitely want to make sure that their immune system's working, but not exactly too much. Too much. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So I was also reading that there could be stages of MS. Could you explain a little bit about that? Yep, absolutely. So 85% to 90% of patients who get diagnosed are diagnosed with a condition known as relapsing remitting. And that basically means that you have relapses, which indicate that you have this short spurt or period of time where the inflammation is kind of at its peak. And then you have remitting or remission. 
just like you do with cancer, where symptoms are quiet, there's no detectable signs of active disease, and the patient is okay. The goal of therapy currently is to prevent those peaks, those episodes of relapses or inflammation, and kind of keep that patient in a quiet, remissive state. 10 to 15% of patients, though, from the beginning have a slow and gradual onset, which is known as primary progressive, meaning their primary presentation was a progressive course. So depending on how the patient presents and that history that we we spoke about, Mm -hmm. which is vital to the diagnosis, kind of tells us what phase that patient is in. And then is there different types of, you know, I guess it's relapse would be the right word for it, but in the long run, you know, is there different ways that people would survive MS depending on what stage they're at? So about 90% of patients that come in with that, you know, relapsing remitting phase of all patients that have MS, because that's the most common, we have the most information on that type and what the long-term prognosis is. So when a patient comes in and says to me, well, how am I going to do long-term? With therapy, 90% of those relapsing remitting patients live a fairly um, active life usually at about 20 to 30 years is when they start to notice some difficulty with walking or some difficulty with their ambulation. Mm -hmm. And then of those patients, 50% of those need some type of an aid later on in life. Ambulation, before you go any further, Mm -hmm. what does that mean? That's a new word for me. Sorry. Yeah. It's okay. Walking. So it's a common word that many patients with MS know, but I think we don't think about it, right? We just walk and we do our thing. So ambulation pretty much means walking. Okay. Okay. And so long-term, a lot of these patients are live a very long and healthy life. And would you even know that they had MS? So I think that a patient with MS knows they have MS. And I think that's the biggest challenge that a lot of patients also cope with when they get diagnosed. Because on the outside, they look healthy. They look, you know, they may not have any physical signs or symptoms that say, hey, I have MS. But on the inside, we do have what's known as silent symptoms fatigue, uh, memory difficulty, um, mood difficulty, spasticity or stiffness, that can be really tough things. So when we talk about disabling qualities, right, or disabling symptoms, Mm -hmm. a lot of those aren't just the physical symptoms that we can see, like ambulation or walking, but really the silent symptoms too. So I think that it's a very tough thing to just label someone and say, well, you look great, you must not have MS, because we really don't know what's going on on the inside. And I think that's why it's important for patients, number one, to recognize what the symptoms could be so they can bring them to their provider and look for possible symptoms or treatments. Um, and then really kind of work together as a team to have that approach um, with specialists who are kind of very familiar with the disease and understanding where their symptoms are coming from. Yeah, and I and you mentioned, you know, it's important for the physician to be familiar with the, the disease because I was reading that MS could go undiagnosed for years. So it really, you know, is important that you find a physician that, that knows their stuff. Absolutely. I actually just saw a patient yesterday who came in and had some numbness and tingling, went away after three, four weeks. So she really didn't think much about it. And it wasn't until a few years later when she lost vision in her eye that the diagnosis really came about. Now, that doesn't mean that anyone who has numbness and tingling, you know, should worry. But I think it's important to just educate ourselves on listening to our bodies and really kind of looking for those signs and symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. 
And now, so you mentioned that that one group of people, the relapse and readmitting, mm-hmm. that you know, ninety percent of them live long, full lives. How about the other stages? Do they also live, you know, long term, full lives, active things like that? So the patients who present with a progressive course. Um, their course is a bit more challenging because we have less treatment options. Okay. And we still haven't figured out what it is with that type of MS that causes that slow and gradual, you know, change in walking, change with different, you know, change in impacting different symptoms that they come in with. So I think that is a little bit more challenging. We currently at our MS center and different MS centers around the country that specialize in MS are aware of clinical trials that are going on, and there are. There are so many different medications that are being studied right now, and especially if individuals are under the age of 60, we really encourage patients to participate in clinical trials because currently there's only one FDA-approved treatment for that stage of MS. So it's important that we get patients who are interested in really kind of helping themselves as well as the MS community participate in trials that really are looking at that specific stage of MS. Yeah, and you mentioned clinical trials, and to me that seems like a like a scary word. Like, ooh, I don't know if I want to be, you know, the test dummy for for such a a, a drug or a medication or or a treatment. Is are clinical trials considered safe? I think that the anxiety around participating in a clinical trial really comes from the fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's a personal choice, and I think that when a patient is interested in a clinical trial, the first step is talking to the provider or the investigator who's running the clinical trial about what it means for that particular trial. So we have a couple of different stages of trial. Most clinical trials that patients are able to participate in in a large group are what's known as phase three trials. These trials have already gone through phase one, which is looking at that particular intervention or whatever it is in the clinical trial that we're testing in a group of animals. Phase two is where we take that you know, um, item of interest and then we look at it in a larger population of patients. And then phase three, which is where most clinical trials are done, is really looking at it in a more objective but large-scale form. So we're talking about thousands of patients typically. Now, in most MS clinical trials these days, we really have gotten rid of what's known as the dummy part of the trial, meaning a placebo group. Mm -hmm. There's no such group anymore. Now we really look at a known drug compared to an unknown drug. And again, I think it's a personal choice. So I think that that it's a very um, important thing to think about. And I think that if it makes sense for the patient and they feel comfortable, I think it's a great way to really be a part of, um, you know, medicine and science. Yeah. And actually, I didn't know that that kind of for MS, that the placebo is taken out of it. So no matter what, you're receiving care, which is important for a lot of people making that decision. Absolutely. Any recommendations for anyone listening that might think they have MS or might have MS currently? What kind of advice would you give them? I do think that multiple sclerosis is one of those conditions where having a specialist and having a team who understands the condition, who really are passionate about caring for their patients with MS is extremely important. Um, I don't think that it's a condition where not doing something is okay. Um, I think I applaud patients like uh, 
you know, people who have MS that are coming forth and sharing their story, because I think that really destigmatizes the disease. A lot of people have this um, have this notion that I'm going to get diagnosed with MS and I'm immediately going to need a cane or a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Um, one group of patients that we haven't spoken about are men. You know, MS is two times more likely to affect women than it is to affect men. But I think that that's also an unspoken population of patients that really are sometimes nervous or afraid of coming out with their diagnosis because they may feel that for them, not being able to walk, not being able to do certain things is not okay to talk about. So I think that even for our male patients, it's important to come out, share their story, and kind of understand, you know, um, and connect with other people who may have the disease. Um, I'll oftentimes hear patients come in and say, you know, I didn't realize that my neighbor down the street knew someone or has MS until I told them that I had MS. So I think it's a lot more common that we probably think it is. And I think it's important to just, you know, share your story. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.